What's up, sons and daughters? This is Sam Jesse coming to you with the crew from Loxa Saturday. Smaller show, a little bit different show than we usually do. So we'll keep this one a bit shorter. I got Robert and Chris with me. Guys, how are you doing? How is the Christmas season going for you two? Things are great. I just one, ate some one tasty beverage at a time. Just getting through the holidays. It's a good day. <laughs> yeah, just had some fudge with uh, vanilla porter. So stomach's nice. feeling a little heavy right now. Not gonna lie, but it was good. Yeah, yeah this is the. Uh, I, I've always thought that Christmas is the more indulgent time than even Thanksgiving. So, especially with the sweets and stuff like that. So. Uh, hopefully with the new year, we can start eating our fruits and veggies, right, guys? Sure. <laughs> well, um, so originally, this show was going to be more focused on the odds and ends and where all the puzzle pieces were going to fall for the coaching carousel this offseason. We were going to look at some of the Vegas odds for where the big names were going to end up. Um, and... Then everything kind of went crazy on Monday and Tuesday and all the big jobs pretty much closed up fairly quickly, a lot quicker than a lot of people thought. And then there was also some moves that weren't made. Virginia Tech fans are very aware of some major coaching decisions that were made to keep certain coaches. Uh, and we'll, we'll circle back to Virginia Tech at the end of this conversation. I don't want it to be too nationally focused. Um, but we, we will go into some of the, the coaching carousel for this offseason because it is kind of interesting with COVID and you know, all the financial strains on pretty much every university except for the SEC schools, apparently, um, as Auburn paid a $21.5 million buyout to get Gus Malzahn out. Um, just a different ball game down there, guys. Different ball game. But we're going to go into it still. And, and I want to start this off. By asking you to, I asked you a little bit earlier today. There were five, I don't want to call them all major, but bigger name jobs that opened and, and were filled up. Auburn, Arizona, Vanderbilt, Illinois, and South Carolina. Guys, can you rank those five jobs for me? Because I thought this was going to be really interesting because I've asked a few people outside of the Loxa Saturday crew and I've gotten wildly different answers. Recruiting capacity and somewhat of uh, you've seen it done well there before. So a coach can come in and not have to expect to basically pull absolutely everything out of absolutely nothing. So, um, I mean, we're not talking about you know replacing Alabama and Oklahoma here. It's South Carolina, Boise, Van Halen, Illinois. So you're looking mm -hmm. at it. Um, and you're basically looking at the margin. So it, it starts with South Carolina. You just look at it as you're in the SEC, but not only that, you're in the SEC East. So at worst, your threshold, you know, like your ceiling is pretty much right now, Georgia and Florida are kind of the one, two, and they kind of fluctuate over the last few years. And then it's open below that. Um, so the capability for South Carolina to build themselves back up where Steve Spurrier only a few years ago actually had them. I think it was like multiple back-to-back-to-back -back -back 11 win seasons. Like you've seen it there done before. And interesting tidbit, 
Shane was actually there during those rebuild years when Spurrier came back. So he's actually seen the glide path of how to get done. So South Carolina, SEC, you got the funding, great schedule, always play Clemson, was my number one out of that. Um, I don't know, Irby, if you had the exact same starter or not, but. I did, I did. And uh, I'll kind of get more into my list and how I came to it in a bit. Um, but South Carolina was definitely number one for me too. Guys, I, I'm a bit different on the number one. Uh, I can't believe I'm saying this. I really did think about it a lot. And I know I'm a little bit of a West Coast bias guy. I think Arizona might be a better job. And here's why. Here's why. Here's why. First off, you get to live in Arizona. Like they do have to live here in those places. Uh, it's, you know, you can make a nice live. If you're rich and you live in Arizona, you're going to have a nice life. We'll put it that way. But one thing I do want to say is I'm looking at like, okay, you want to go to a place and you want to accept a challenge and you want to play at the highest level. But at the same time, you have to go somewhere where you can have a realistic shot at winning. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's not South Carolina. I mean, it's just not. I mean, their ceiling right now is third in their division. I I mean, I, I don't know if that how attractive of a job that is because, I, I mean, you want to have to go up against Georgia and Florida every single year. Your crossover is you know, more than likely going to be a team like Alabama, Auburn, Texas A&M. If you're lucky, you get Missouri. Uh, well, Missouri's in the East. If you're lucky, you get like Mississippi State. Um, and, and, you know, I just don't think it's that attractive of a job. Now, is it better than Illinois, Vanderbilt, whatever? Of course. Can you win at South Carolina? Of course. Can you attract recruits? Of course. But if you're talking about, I want to get a program up to the point where they can challenge for division titles, therefore conference titles, therefore New Year's Six Bowls, uh, it, I wouldn't put South Carolina in that category, whereas Arizona – you beat USC and you're kind of there for the Pac-12 South. I mean, Utah is going to be good every three, four years, but the path is there. Like, all you got to do is have a decent team. I mean, Arizona was in the Fiesta Bowl five years ago, if that, five, six years ago. I believe it was 2014. They were in the Fiesta Bowl. So it's not like it hasn't been done there before. And talk about fertile recruiting grounds. Arizona has some of the best high school football in the country, them in South uh, Southern California and the Vegas area as well. So, um, I, and that's my number one. I'll let you guys finish your list, but I, I had Arizona. Uh, Chris is giving me a look. Like I'm crazy. <laughs> Let, let's get this straight. Just, just the caveat on that one. Tucson is like barely in Arizona. So let's just go ahead. <laughs> you're, 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 you're stretching it with that one, but I'll, I'll, I'll bite on that one a little bit, but a hey, great tacos. I'm sure the, uh, Oh, phenomenal food. Um, yeah, I, I basically just kind of had track record of history right below that. So to me, Boise is right now and has been since it basically became a division one program. I think it was in the late nineties, always been, um, I think it was a dirt cutter was like the first person to actually get them going uh, in the late nineties. Um, but as a, as a, you are the best group of five other than maybe Cincinnati program over the last 20 years with sustained success. It it's the peak level coach coach spot. You can get in the group of five 
show that you can do it there, and then you can get that next level position. And we've seen it over and over again with these same two schools. Um, most recently, yes, with Brian Harson now at Auburn too. So it, it's a it's a leaping platform where if you just take the reins and you don't mess it up and you continue to win 10 to 11 wins at these two programs, you're going to get a look at not only the Power Five, but possibly even NFL gig. So um, just Boise, they seem to be just be all in on football and it's a great environment, great program. So I had them at my number two. Um, then I looked at the kind of the two to me kind of, you could flip a coin between these, between Illinois and Arizona, just because Illinois has the edge with the actual resources. They're in the Big Ten. Their contract is just huge. Pac-12, like ACC fans gripe, but the Pac-12 TV deal is ridiculously bad. Like it is the worst in Power 5, probably even below the AAC. I don't know how you can have a bunch of West Coast people who are supposed to be smart involved with this and come up with such a bad product. And uh, I, I just... I could go on about the Pac-12 commissioner all day, but that, that man deserves uh, absolutely no credit for where they're at as a conference right now. He's done a terrible job. But um, the, the biggest hit against Illinois is just – actually, I'll say, number one, the biggest uh, uh, pro for them is not just the resources, but their division. They're in the Pac – excuse me, the Big Ten West. Was that the Legends or the Leaders? Which, which one was that one? I forgot. It, but, uh, it wasn't East and West. It was all mixed up. I have no idea. No yeah, idea. I, I can't remember when they did that, but their biggest ceiling uh, blocker right now, I believe, is Wisconsin. Other than that, it seems to be pretty mixed after that every single year. Um, so you do have that. Other than just Champaign being in the middle of nowhere, people call it like a suburb of Chicago. Well, it's like two hours south. That's a pretty, that's a pretty far stretch for a suburb, so I'll give it that. Um, then I have Zona. Uh, it's a basketball school. I mean, you know, undergrads, sure. I'm sure it's got a great atmosphere. Everything's going. Um, but other than that, they don't really have. And then I put Vandy dead last. Um, other than just having SEC money and being in Nashville, there's no upside to that program. And it's just, it's occupied by, I mean, other than James Franklin who showed he could have somewhat limited success, but he was looking to get out of there as soon as possible to go somewhere else. As soon as it came open, uh, Vandy is always going to be just, um, was it like a, like a baseball school, you know, in Nashville that no one really cares about, but they get all the benefits of, uh, that, you know, sec revenue sharing. So it can't be that bad. All you need to do is win six wins there. And that's great. Six wins. And you can have a, a job for life if you can figure that out. But yeah, that's my top five. I'll uh, kick it over to Irby. Yeah, so for mine, um, I kind of, I created, I don't know, I don't want to make this sound bigger than it is, but I created a small sort of metric uh, to determine like value of a program in this. And basically I calculated two factors, which were um, resources and stability of the program. Um, because I think that, and maybe it's a bit simplistic, but I think that it, it really kind of bo all boils down to those two things. Um, kind of everything else you guys have touched on, you know, history, like that sort of thing, um, conference, TV deals, all of it kind of encompasses into your resources. Um, and you want stability. So um, basically this metric is you got points for um, how much annual revenue you have and you lost value for how many coaches you've had since 2010. 
Um, and so based on this metric, South Carolina was number one, because even though things are getting a little crazy over there, um, <laughs> they still have that SEC money and that money is great. And their donor base is still pretty solid. Um, they, yeah, I mean, they rake in a lot of money, um, maybe not as much as they'd like, but South Carolina, you have, you have everything you need there. Even though their schedule is tough, you have everything you need in order, um, to recruit well and also to make money yourself. Um, and then, so next on that list would be Illinois. Um, Illinois had kind of a slight edge over Arizona who was in third. And again, that boils down to what Chris, you were saying about the, the respective uh, TV deals for the conferences because big 10, a lot better money, pac 12, not so much. Um, and then next would be Vanderbilt because even though they do have that SEC money, they don't really have much other money. Um, their donor base, not great. Um, they've had a few different coaching changes, Franklin leaving, but they had a one-year coach before him. And now um, Mason was there for six years. And then at the bottom was Boise. And even though they do have the stability of only two coaches in the last 10 years and you know good history and everything, the money just isn't there. And your ceiling, especially in the group of five, is so much lower um, in Boise State. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't put them at fifth in this list, but I think that that's the money, just money talks. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. It's the one knock on Boise is the the you're basically missing one or two zeros at the end of every number you're dealing with compared to, you know, a South Carolina or an Illinois. And I, I have Arizona as my number one. I went through that. I know it's a hot take. I just think that that's a place where they just need one coach and one player and they could, you know, win some football games. Uh, my number two, I have Boise. You guys know I love Boise. Uh, it's a place that has a long, I mean, we're at like 25 years of Boise State being a winning, winning program every single year. Their rebuilding years are nine and 10 wins. Uh, and talking about fan base, um, you know, one of the better fan bases of all group of five teams, um, and just a place you can win. And the rumor now is that they are really trying to get into the American. If Boise State gets into the American, that could change the landscape of college football totally. I mean, I, we could do an entire podcast about that, but if Boise State gets in the American, that job changes drastically. Um, and so does, you know, the, the power structure of group of five football, basically it does become a power six at that point um, because the American would have three or four top 25 teams every year. Maybe the Pac-12 um, gets relegated to the group of five. Oh, I mean, the American, if they add Boise, would be considerably better than the Pac-12, at least recently. And then that's not really a hot take if you add in another 10-win team. So I, I have Boise number two in that one. Number three, I have uh, USC East. Um, it's just such a tough place to win. Not only, I, I talked about Florida and Georgia. They also have Clemson on the schedule every single year. Um, you're looking at three losses just off the bat. It's just such a tough place to win. Um, but again, they do have the money, um, recruiting base, all that jazz. Four, I have Illinois. Now, I've talked to some people outside of the crew who actually think Illinois might be the best job on this list. And 
their reasoning is, look, you have the opportunity to win. Big 10 has a lot of money. Illinois is a massive, massive university, huge donor pool, uh, great university as well. Uh, that's a place that could win, could. I, I mean, it's the building blocks are there. My issue with Illinois is they have never really done it. Um, like Dick Buckus was the last guy at Illinois to do anything. I mean, they had a Super Bowl uh, coach, coached in a Super Bowl, didn't win the Super Bowl, in Lovey Smith, and they couldn't do anything with that either. Um, and number five, Vanderbilt, it's a baseball school. You're right, Chris, I mean, a college baseball powerhouse. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's about it. That's about it. I'm sorry, Bandy. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, I, I wanted to bring that up and I wanted to get your input on it because as we go through these lists of names, it, it is kind of interesting to look at where these guys went. You have Brian Harson, who was at Boise State, 69 and 19 in seven seasons at Boise State. That is a phenomenal uh, record over the span of seven years. He gets the job at Auburn. Uh, Irby, you were pretty into the weeds with the Auburn uh, drama and uh so we'll go into that i mean they fired gus malzahn at, after it, the the program became stagnant and it became so reliant on transcendent player to get them to the next level that transcendent player being cam newton um the, the program just became stagnant and i i always i have said it before on this show but you know sec football it, it's great to be an sec football school until it's not until it gets really icky and gross. And I think this was just an example of what can happen at these quote unquote football schools when there's not really a plan and they just want change. So Irby, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you talk about uh, what's happening down on the plains in Alabama. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, it, it's all a bunch of hearsay and you hear certain rumors, but you know, from what, I understand uh, there were plans to have Kevin Steele be the head coach once Malzahn was fired, but then certain events occurred to make Kevin Steele no longer an option. Um, and I would be surprised if he was back at Auburn in any capacity. Uh, so then it's a mad scramble. And now you have all these outside coaches that they're trying to go after. You know, you've got Sarkeesian says no. You've got Bill Clark says no. Billy Napier says no. I mean, if you can't even pull the head coaches of Louisiana and UAB, I mean, what are you doing, Auburn, right? Um, clearly, there's something going on there, some some kind of instability going on there. <clears throat> um, and I think especially as the SEC West is going to continue to get more and more competitive, Auburn's in danger because not only is Alabama, Alabama, but A&M is rolling. You've got LSU could bounce back. They won a national championship within the last, you know, two years. Uh, you've got Ole Miss and Mississippi State, two high-profile coaches, and you've got Arkansas, who is on the up as well. And Auburn could find themselves finishing fifth, sixth, maybe seventh in the SEC West very shortly. Um, so Harson's got he's got his work cut out for him. Um, and I certainly don't envy his position, but then again, I would really enjoy making multiple millions of dollars to coach football. So, yeah, and you, he has the winning track record, but 
he's not really from the deep south at all has no ties to the area and that might become an issue uh he's gonna have a a nice little blank checkbook to get some assistance together but he's gonna have to i, I mean we talk about it with virginia tech you know getting guys from the area to recruit the area getting those connections it's so important it's probably even more important down there because you're not recruiting against uva and unc you're recruiting against lsu and alabama and florida and georgia it's just the totally different ball game down there. Chris, any comments on the Auburn head coaching job as they bring in Brian Harson? Yeah, for me, it was just he he doesn't have any ties. So who's he going to convince to be his quarters? Because I can't assume that they're not going to clean house and kind of do like a complete like restructuring, kind of like what we're waiting to see what Beamer is going to be doing um, at uh, South Carolina. And also how much is actually signed for and how much they're actually going to be um, available because there ultimately is a budget in place. They have to find somebody. Um, and if it is like, quote unquote, in a COVID year, no one's wanting to really um, take the risk in doing it. And that's what seemed like what happened at Auburn. Like a lot of coaches just didn't seem like they really wanted to like take the leap, go into this unknown situation. Um who are you going to get that's going to be able to execute your plan? Are you going to bring Boise State people with you? Are you really going to just take not just what you can do, but try to take a staff of like seven or eight people and all of a sudden thrust them into the SEC West and say, hey, guys, every Saturday you got to prep for Alabama now. And it's it's just it, it just stretches them beyond their capacity. So that's what I'm going to be paying attention to is just who they can hire and bring in on such a short notice, it seems like. Um, and for a coach who seemed to be like they were their sixth choice. Uh, I'm I'm very, very skeptical of what Auburn's going to look like in a few years. Um, but you never know. So we'll, best of luck, Brian. <laughs> I'll be uh, I'll be betting against you. That, that that's probably <laughs> gonna be the result of this. You you got this, Brian. <laughs> you got this, dude. Uh we will uh to continue to use corporate America lingo, we will circle back to this Auburn job. There's a reason we started with it. Let's go across the country though, to Tucson, Arizona. Uh, Kevin Sumlin, a big name in college football coaching. He lost how many straight games at Arizona? 11, 12, something like that. A lot. Like it got bad. It got really, really bad. They lost 70 to seven against our tribe that counts as at least three losses that counts it's so bad at home at home and, and you know it's um kevin sumlin is the guy and uh, you know um part of my take with barstool sports they make the joke all the time where it's like connect yourself to one successful person at the beginning of your career and then you can use that for the rest of your life because everyone will always say oh remember that time that they were with that person. It's like Adam Gase and Peyton Manning. You know, Adam Gase gets a job because he was connected to Peyton Manning for that one little sliver of time. Kevin Sullivan was connected to Johnny Manziel and Mike Evans. And Irby, uh, uh, you would be a pretty darn good college football coach if your quarterback was Johnny Manziel and your lead wide receiver was Mike Evans. Uh, you'd probably be pretty good. So he's out. They bring in Jed Fish. Jed Fish has no head coaching experience, but plenty of coaching experience. He is coming from New England, where he was the quarterback coach. Before that, he worked at UCLA, uh, where he was quarterback coach, offensive coordinator, was interim head coach for two games, 
there. Before that, he was the passing game coordinator under Harbaugh at Michigan. Before that, he had stints with the Jacksonville Jaguars, the Seattle Seahawks, and uh, University of Minnesota, among others. So he's bounced around. He's been to a lot of places. He's one of those offensive guru, quarterback whisperer type coaches, but lacks a lot of experience. And it seems like there were some good uh, coaching candidates, guys like Billy Napier, um, you know, others around the country that were there for the taking. Um, Brent Brennan from San Jose State. Chris, your guy. Um, I thought he was a locket for this job. I and mean, Brent, what Brent Brennan did, he took the worst college full, major college football program. I mean, the absolute worst and went undefeated and won a conference championship this year. Um, the fact that he did not get this job is mind boggling to me. But Jed Fish, quarterback guy, I guess that's what they're going for. Chris, do you have any input on the Arizona job? So back when we were kind of pseudo ramping up to possibly at Virginia Tech, the kind of big upheaval, I started looking at historical hires made across college football, particularly at the power five level, because it seems to be not seems to be it is a different level between power five uh, performance and group of five performance and how new coaches kind of thrive or, or fall flat on their face in each. And it, it depends but in the end of the day, there was essentially kind of different types of candidate profiles. There was the group of five coach, the power five coordinator, the power five coach, and then that random NFL person, not necessarily a coach could be a coordinator, could be like an analyst, somebody just, you know, the, the NFL hires uh, are the most varied background experience possibly across the board. So between 2010 and 2019, I didn't include last year or this season just because it was such an admirable season. I didn't want to use it um, in kind of my, my, my metrics here. But overall, there were eight out of, I think, about 106 hires that kind of came from this NFL background, and they had varied levels of experience. Um, a full win less impact rather than their five-year historical average prior to that person being hired recruiting was a full, I think, six or seven points worse than the prior person. And not just recruiting classes, but also recruiting rating for the average recruiting rating, because recruiting classes can vary based off of size and personnel, but the average rating of the recruit was also the worst. And they had the least amount of not only 10 win season success, but bowl game success, not only like getting there and then losing as well. So of all of the groups that you can possibly hire for a power five program, NFL hires are the worst. <laughs> and I think this will be the worst. Like you mentioned it as a potential, they're not going to realize their potential. I usually go with the, the, the exception rather than the rule sometimes, but in this case, it's very much the rule rather than the exception. Um, hats off to, Jed Fish, wherever he's coming from and his his pathway to get here. But, you know, you are now a power five football coach. And historically, looking at these 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 numbers, more than likely, it's not going to work out well for him. So um, the continued mediocrity of Arizona football will continue into uh, the next few years as long as he's there, which 
their their average years of coaching, 3.4 years out of all the coaches, which is roughly about five or six, they have the lowest amount of tenure in their positions too. So Arizona, it could be over quick too. So you never know. But <laughs> you know, Two quick things before uh, Irby chimes in. Oh, first off, look at some of the names that have coached at Arizona. Rich Rodriguez and Kevin Sumlin, neither of them had resounding success. So maybe it was, you know, you know, that Arizona donor base, the big donors, the university itself kind of saying, look, we've tried the grab the guy from the big power five school and bring him out West route. It kind of bit us in the butt twice and we had to overpay those guys. Um, so maybe let's go a little cheaper. Jeff Fish, five years, $14.1 million. Uh, he'll start off with 1.8, work up to 2 million. Um, so they're getting him for pretty darn cheap. And maybe that is part of it where they kind of figured we don't want to make a big splash higher because one, we don't have the money for it. And two, it's not worth it. As we've seen on the scoreboard, we just got ran up 70 to seven. Um, Irby, your thoughts on the Arizona job. Well, and that's an interesting point you bring up, Sam, um, about kind of the cost effectiveness of it. Um, and I, I'll be honest, I had not heard of Jed Fish. Uh, sounds a lot like no, Dead Fish. No one uh, had heard of him. Yeah, I had not heard of him until he got the job. And I don't know if he fits this mold that I'm about to talk about, but if he does, this could be a good move. Um, I think that there's there's value in picking the um, those CEOs. All you really need to do is surround. So yes, those CEO types, um, and particularly the ones that are a little bit cheaper. And so you pay a little bit less for your head coach, but then you use that extra money and you surround him with a strong offensive coordinator, strong defensive coordinator. Um, essentially, you just ask him to just keep the ship afloat. And as far as X's and O's and recruiting, let the advanced staff handle the rest. And if he has the ability to be that type of coach who can just manage and really manage the staff among everything else, um, then Arizona might've gotten their money's worth here. But if he's not that type of coach, then they got what they paid for, I suppose. Yeah. It it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds because, again, like we said, and much like with the ACC Coastal, there is an avenue to success. Maybe a little less with the ACC Coastal now, but there is an avenue to um, certainly bowl games at Arizona at minimum bowl games. So um, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, good luck, Jed. You got it, dude. You got it. Um, you got this. Next, we're going to go to from probably one of the easier undergraduate experiences to recruit to at Arizona to probably one of the tougher ones at Vanderbilt. Um, Derek Mason, very well-respected coach. Uh, it, it wasn't working out. He didn't have the magic stuff that I think was needed at that point. They felt like they needed to make a change because Vanderbilt was just becoming They've won some games in the past, but it just nothing was happening. They bring in Clark Lee. He is, is it Lee or Leia? Lee? 
no idea. Hadn't heard of him either. <laughs> I believe it's Lee. He's the uh, defensive coordinator at Notre Dame. So former Vanderbilt football player himself. Uh, seems to be a good hire just from the standpoint of how well Notre Dame's defense has been the last few years, especially under him, the last three years as defensive coordinator. Uh, I feel like Vanderbilt's the type of job where you need the football team to have its own internal identity because you're not going to get that from the university. You're not going to get it from the fan base like you do at some other uh football schools or really just anywhere else. You kind of have to build it internally. I think you need a hard-nosed defensive guy to do that. So in that case, I think it's a really good hire. You get an alum, you get somebody who's had success, who's going to bring an identity. Um, They need need defense. The SEC has become uh, basketball on grass is what Ed Orgeron called it in the offseason. I think it's a good hire overall. It's I can't imagine many higher profile coaches and by higher profile, I mean, of the guys that were uh, looking for moves this off season, really considered Vanderbilt as much as they would Arizona, Illinois, South Carolina, uh, Boise now, you know, what have you. So Chris thoughts on this one in Nash Vegas. Well, the first thing I had to look at him was just kind of like what his track record was. So I was like, all right, so where is this guy coming from? Can he expect the shift? Because when you go to Notre Dame to Vanderbilt, you're, you have to expect to drop down significantly in pretty much every category that I think Rob, uh, uh, Ir- Irby was alluding to earlier and like resources. Anything in his metrics is significantly lower than where he's coming from. Um, so he did have past experience it, it does seem like he wants to be associated with kind of like smart schools that was my first impression guy was at ucla went to Q's for a little bit he's at wake forest notre dame and now he's back at his alma mater in vandy so he's a smart guy at a smart school we'll see what happens with that i like that kind of alignment a little bit sometimes um just because it's his alma mater he probably you know is familiar with what he's getting himself into so you know you do have that um that that almost uh, that veil lifted a little bit for you. Like, you know, you're not going in and getting like the best of the best and you know what needs to be done there. Um, And I do like the fact that he's a defensive guy versus an offensive guy in the SEC in order to have any semblance of a chance, you're not going to out recruit people for offensive talent. Uh, Franklin tried to do that. It was somewhat sustainable, but then Franklin was probably their best offensive recruiter that they will ever have in their entire history of their program. Um, so to shift away from that, let's go ahead and double down on defense. Um, so what I can see Vanderbilt eventually becoming is more of like a competent kind of like Wake Foresty type program under this guy. That kind of fit that same mold of, hey, we're going to be that kind of, you know, we'll we'll get the three stars kind of almost you know, like the, um, you know, three star occasional, maybe one four star who wants to just play in the SEC. But Um, I can see them turning into like a Wake Forest, like a Northwestern type program where um, they essentially just say our identity is going to be built off of just being a very competent defense that every once in a while we'll find enough talent on the offensive side, depending upon who he brings in. That's going to be a big part of it Um, that can essentially go above that. Like like I said before, like that six win threshold, the seven win threshold, that's their um, that's their mold that they're probably going to like define success off of and then maybe get to 
something beyond that, but it's never going to be compete for a championship, compete for anything beyond that. It's just, you just will never do that at Vanderbilt. Um, plus I saw that he went with the full big head kind of uh, Lex Luthor kind of look his previous photos. He had somewhat of like a uh, trying to manage the situation as it was going away early and just went full, full bald. I respect that. I, I you just, it, to me, it tells me that he is steeped in reality of the situation. He can kind of figure out what he needs to do and maximize it. So he maximized that situation. Well, so I like that. But um, enjoy Nash Vegas. Enjoy the honky tonks. Enjoy the hot chicken. Enjoy Nashville. Um, so best luck to this guy. I'm actually glad that Notre Dame is somewhat worse by getting rid of somebody who was good. So that's that's the win in all of this for ACC fans is um, they're losing somebody good from their program. So. Yeah, and I I agree with all that. I think maybe Vanderbilt would be a fun kind of job just because you're in Nashville and coaching in the SEC, but I just don't think um, it's really that. Uh, you don't have a huge roadmap to success there. Um, and honestly, the one thing about my metric that maybe I disagree with is Vanderbilt being above Boise State. Honestly, I might put Vanderbilt last. Um I think the thing is, is their donor base, it's probably not in a position to get any bigger anytime soon. And yes, they do have this great SEC deal, but they're, they're just so capped on what they can be. And you bring up a great point about Franklin. Um, James Franklin, again, was probably the best coach that Vanderbilt will ever have. Uh, and the best thing he could do was two nine win seasons in a row, which was good, but they still finished fourth in their division both years. I mean, you're in the SEC and yep. that's kind of the best you can be, you know? Yeah. And you know, when people say like, Oh, bowl games don't matter. Bowl games don't matter. Well, if, if you're ahead of Vanderbilt, if you're at Arizona, um, if you're at Illinois, like that's kind of the measure of your program at that point, finishing 500 and having all giving your student athletes, those experiences and getting a little bit of extra money and the extra fan engagement and the TV that goes along with that. So it is important to some schools uh, just to get on to Clark Lee. So first year as the defensive coordinator, and he was on staff before this, but first year defensive coordinator at Notre Dame, Notre Dame was 31st in the country in scoring defense. His next year in 2018, they were number uh, 2019, excuse me. They were number 13 in the country in scoring defense this year, number 14 in the country in scoring defense. So um, they have improved greatly under him. They've been one of the better defenses in the country under him. So uh, a good hire, I mean, probably as good as they were going to get. So uh, Clark, you got this dude. Uh, don't, don't be intimidated by the schedule. You're going to do great. Uh, and you're going to have lots of uh, whiskey sours and hot chicken for, you know, as long as you want. Win six games, you'll never have to buy a drink again. Uh, yeah, we hope we're, we're we're giving a lot of these coaches death wishes, basically. I mean, it's like, yeah, good luck, buddy. <laughs> well, the guy, the guy before them didn't succeed for a reason. And, uh, you know, talking about the guy before him, Illinois, um, boy, oh boy. Uh, Lovey Smith just, it felt like, oh, next year he'll be better. Next year will be better. And it just never happened. The wins never came. Even when the Big Ten West was, you know, a little bit down, it just never happened at Illinois. Um, outside of a few upsets here and there, they were pretty irrelevant under him. 
So they move on to Brett Bielema. <laughs> and Brett Bielema, the guy who um, inherited the Wisconsin program from one of the all-time great college football coaches, Barry Alvarez at Wisconsin, did well there, started to fizzle out, uh, spent some time at Arkansas, uh, of course, uh, coached against Virginia Tech in the Belk Bowl that year. Uh, Brett Bielema is a, a People have a lot of opinions on him. He gets a little bit, a um, little bit Mike London, a little bit uh, Pat Narduzzi on the sidelines with spending a lot of time talking to the guys wearing black and white stripes instead of the guys wearing his team's uniform. Uh, but Brett Bielema is a guy who he has won in the past and he has a lot of experience and he has won in that division in the Big Ten. Um I'm not a huge fan of this hire. I think Brett Bielma is a guy who's kind of fizzled out at this point. Um, for Illinois, getting a name like that, he's going to be able to recruit. Um, it's an easy sell, but I'm just not huge on getting a guy that seems like is on the tail end of his coaching career. Like He has peaked, in my opinion. Uh, I'm curious what you guys think about this because, again, although we ranked Illinois a little bit lower – um, compared to these other schools. I, I have talked to people who think that this is one of the better jobs that was open. Yeah, I mean, I had Illinois as second on my list. Um, and the the margin between them and South Carolina really wasn't that big. Um, I mean, it was fairly sizable, but it, it wasn't huge. Um, I mean, they tend to be patient with their coaches. I mean, they gave Lovey Smith how many years? Five? Like, I mean, that, that wasn't going to happen. Like we knew that you could tell year one or year two, that wasn't going to work out, but they gave him more time. I mean, I don't love Bielma, um, but he is a hometown guy, grew up in Illinois. Uh, fun fact, this will be the first team he's ever been the head coach of that's colors aren't red and white. So maybe that means something good for him. I don't know. They're uh, blue and orange now, so yeah, great color combination. Maybe great. maybe it just wasn't the right uh, red and white. Just wasn't his thing. I don't Good know. Uh, Illinois, I mean, yeah, they they do have the Big Ten money. Um, the Big Ten as a conference is has definitely taken some steps backwards, um, minus Ohio State, of course. Um, I mean, it's it's possible for them in you know, two or three years to be winning eight or nine games with regularity. It's also possible for them to continue to not be good. So I don't know. We'll see what Bielman does. He certainly has um, the resources to compete if he can, if he can make it work. Yeah. I don't really have too much to add to that one other than just the Big Ten West is unimpressive overall as a product, so there is no real ceiling in this case. Um, I can see other than just Wisconsin, who's just always been there, and the only reason we know that they're there is because everyone else is terrible. Like Wisconsin can be overtaken as well. They're not like this huge powerhouse as well. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I'll, I'm in wait and see mode on this one. I have no idea. So uh, I can probably just move on from and never speak of this ever again. <laughs> you're gonna wake up at about 11 30 
make yourself a little uh, egg muffin with some sriracha, stumble your way to the couch. It's going to be noon and you're going to look up on the screen and Illinois is going to be playing Northwestern and Brett Bielema is going to be in a big old navy blue quarter zip uh, with a little bit of drizzle coming down. And you're going to be like, how the heck did he end up there? And uh, excited for that moment for all of us. That's going to be great. Brett Bielema, best of luck. Um, you'll need it. You'll need it because that's uh, not an easy place to win. None of the places we've talked about are really easy places to win. The next job is probably the one where, you know, outside of Auburn, the high expectations that come with it. And there is a familiar face to many Hokie fans that will be wearing the garnet black in South Carolina. Shane Beamer uh, was almost immediately hired by South Carolina. Um, a lot of Tech fans thought that this was maybe the catalyst. Not, not, not the catalyst, because we'll go into, you know, other other things with the Virginia Tech coaching job. But once Shane Beamer was gobbled up by South Carolina pretty quickly and seemed like that's where he wanted to go, that took off a really top candidate from Virginia Tech, and it just didn't look like they were going to get anybody else. So Shane Beamer to South Carolina. I'm interested in your thoughts, Irby, because uh, Tech fans are – there's a lot of mixed feelings about this one. Let's put it that way. And I have some – Interesting stuff from the national media about this one as well. Yeah, you know, uh, Dr. Lord Jeremy Counts and I were certainly uh, driving the Shane train. Uh, hey, one of the crew, Ed was big on the Shane train, our fellow crew member. I got, I got, I got Shane on board. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I got Ed on board and like in Polar Express, I said all aboard and he hopped on the train, you know. Uh, he had his ticket, but unfortunately the train was derailed thanks to a, uh, I guess we'll say a large chicken in the, in the road or on the, on the rails that just sent it off course. Uh, I do like Shane a lot. I think this is maybe not South Carolina's best hire on paper. Um, but I think that they've brought in a guy who is certainly invested in the job and invested in the community. I mean, you can see it in the tear-filled eyes um, in his videos as he's walking through the stadium and he's taking it all in, remembering the times he was there. And speaking of those times that he was there, when he was South Carolina's recruiting coordinator, he was the recruiting coordinator when they brought in Jadavian Clowney, Stefan Gilmore, Connor Shaw, uh, Mark Slattimore, Alshon Jeffrey, all these studs, maybe Melvin Ingram too. And, you know, I don't know, uh, maybe something could happen there. I mean, it's, it's kind of like what I was talking about earlier, where you pay someone a little bit less and you use that extra money to surround them with a good staff. It could happen. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Shane is, is the person that can steer this in the right direction. I mean, you have to think that his father's name is playing a pretty substantial role in him getting this opportunity um, and he could make the most of his opportunity or South Carolina could continue to be what they are. So I like it. I don't love it, but I like it. I think if they hire him with or hire the right staff around him, which there was some fear among Virginia tech contingents that 
Bud Foster was going to come out of retirement and be his defensive coordinator. But I can tell you, I can report that that is not happening. So they'll have as to find first reports, As first reported by Sons of Saturday, Bud Foster is very comfortable in his lake house. Yes, I have, I have sources that can confidently say he ain't coming. Yeah, and I just um, look with Shane Beamer. It's obviously you know, no head coaching experience except for um, the interim head coach for a Tech Bowl game um, when when you know Frank was ill. Um, He's one to He's one and zero. One and zero. Look, as far as Shane Beamer coming to Virginia Tech, bottom line you are not going to be successful taking over the job for which your father has a statue. It's just not going to happen. And um, for South Carolina, I think it was a very sentimental hire. It was um, one to get the fan base going. It was one to get some of the former players going. He is an elite recruiter. Um, I mean, the names that you listed off, Irby are like pro bowlers. I mean, we're not talking just good college players, like pro bowlers. Um, as far as the X's and O's, as far as being a coach, I, I think it is his expectations are going to be a lot higher than his experience level at that job. Let's just be honest with that one. Um, they do have one of the tougher schedules every single year in terms of strength of schedule. They're usually top five. I mean, they're way up there. Um, I think Virginia Tech fans are going to see this as wow, home run hire for South Carolina. They got their guy. Um, national media is not as big on it because, it, again, on a national landscape, he's seen more as an, a good offensive assistant elite recruiter than he is a top-notch coach. Um, see, I'm, I'm looking at CBS right now. They have ratings for the new ha- hires. Um, they give Shane Beamer a B-minus for South Carolina to put that in perspective. Uh, they have Brett Bielema at Illinois as a B plus. They have Clark Lee at Vanderbilt as a B. Uh, they have uh, Brian Harson at Auburn as a B plus. Jed Fish at Arizona as a B minus. So they're not thinking super high of Shane Beamer. I think it's something that can work because this seems like his his job. I mean, this is the Hokie fans aren't going to wait here. This is a dream job. I mean, this is what he was going for. This is what he wanted, and he got it. Best of luck to him. I hope he succeeds. Um, but outside of that sentimental, I think there is a lot of risk involved with being at a university that expects eight, nine wins a year, and then getting somebody who's never coached that. And then basically saying, you start out the season 0-3 because you have to play Florida, Georgia, and Clemson every year. Uh, Chris, your thoughts on Shane Beamer, the Shane train pulling into Columbia, South Carolina. Yeah, to be honest, I was never really on the on the Shane train. Um, I agree that there are aspects of that type of coaching profile, like I was talking about, like, you know, when I went in and did a deep dive of these are the types of coaches, you know, Shane would have been one where there was the least amount of statistical evidence of all the coaching profiles. I actually put his profile in the miscellaneous bucket with like only like four other coaches because he's never been the lead coordinator, lead coach, lead anything really in any of the programs. He's always just been that quote unquote, unquote assistant head coach role, which it, it varies dependent upon the program. You might be just the person who gets the head coach's coffee versus the person who is actually like involved in doing a lot of the scheming and X's and O's. 
I can only go by what I read when he was here and involved with when he was, you know, working with our running backs and our program and then um, kind of extrapolate that. But yeah, I mean, it seems like he's going to be the quote unquote CEO type hire. Uh, The one thing I did want to read into was what his compensation was going to be. Cause this to me is the key to his success. If they have a coaching pool of money available and that pool is X dollars. And I think his base salary is like a little over a million. I think total compensation is somewhere relative around like kind of like in the mid twos, high twos. That's really low in terms of this is an sec football coach. Um, So what that hopefully is going to be is, He's going to have those day one, hopefully be able to hire those those elite type coordinators that he's going to need because he's never been an elite coordinator in his life. He's going to be the exact opposite of that. Um, the one thing you just can't ignore is and I think I mentioned it with another coach. Who's he going to hire? Who are those people that are going to come in in the middle of this year? Because we haven't seen a lot of migration for anything right now. So to say that just he's going to have a large amount of money to get people to coordinate for him at South Carolina doesn't mean it's going to happen. Um, so that's the biggest if right now. So I, I'm, I'm with the field right now and kind of wait and see mode. I want to see who they hire to then say, okay, with these people in place and him being that CEO person, who can kind of close down the deal. Now, granted, they say elite head coach, I'm sorry, elite recruiter, Head coaches in Power 5 programs rarely actually recruit. Everyone talks about that, but they're just kind of there. They're, they're like the, the, the you know, glad hand, the high rollers, and maybe, you know, seal the deal. But they're not calling people and texting and having these conversations and actually doing the recruiting. So when everyone talks about like an elite head coach now who's a recruiter, that should not be the case. <laughs> I mean, people use that against our current coach all the time, but he should not be out there doing all of the recruiting kind of grunt work as well. That's, that's not what they're there for. They do a lot of other things that that's why they staff it out. Um, so I have, I have no doubt in my mind, he'll be able to get that kind of lower level staff filled out. A lot of those kind of up and coming people who just want to operate an SEC program. But when it comes to X's and O's, and that's his biggest weakness right now, when it comes to X's and O's, you need to see who he's going to associate with himself for his offensive coordinator and his defensive coordinator, because that's going to be everything for them. Because if they hire the wrong people, they're going to be in the exact same spot as a, a mid-tier SEC East program, not even an SEC program. Um, and that's going to be the problem for them going forward is just how do they improve upon that if they do make the run hire. So um, I, I think I come back to it. It's like, best of luck, Shane. <laughs> Good luck in the new venture. We'll see what happens to you. Um, but it, it's going to take some time. This is going to be a rebuild for them, probably more so than they think. Chris, what would you say if Shane filled those coordinator positions with Chad Morris and Derek Mason? So you have two former SEC head coaches, one of which has coached in the state of South Carolina before, and I mean, I'm sorry, in Morris. Um, both very good coordinators have both been proven to be good coordinators, just weren't great head coaches. What would you say to that? That would be a win. I mean, for them at that school with the people, because he's not going to get what they have at Alabama and say, hey, I'm just going to go ahead and get Sark in here and he's going to be my offensive coordinator. Like, that's not the type of money that they're pulling in right now. Um, So 
if that's what they can do, then sure. Because you also look at who else they have to coach against. And that's what other people forget about a lot of times. They don't mention what they have going on in their school. It's who do you have to compete against? And right now I'm not sold on Dan Mullen being this Uber, you know, elite head coach in the sec East. You know, he's, he's, he's prone to some, some weird, weird actions on the sideline there. And um, as far as Kirby smart is concerned, he's a defensive guy, but offense is driving everything in the sec right now and across the country. So that position, you know, that's not an elite elite head coach when you think of in terms of like what is driving college football right now, which is offense. So he doesn't have two people right now. If he does something like that, that is going to be overwhelmingly difficult to come against like Fisher and Saban in the West. That's, that's damn near impossible because those guys are, are just operating well oil machines and they are elite at what they do. Um, so if he does something like that, it might, they, now they have to get the people in and, We'll see what happens with that, but that would be a great start. So hats off to him if you can pull it. Yeah. And it's interesting if you look at their schedule next year, um, you know, we've mentioned Clemson, obviously they're going to lose that game that next year, that's a given. And they have to play at Georgia. That will almost certainly be a loss as well. But you look at the rest of their schedule, their non-conference besides Clemson is Eastern Illinois, East Carolina and Troy. Those are three very winnable games. Then you have at Missouri. That's a tough opponent. Auburn at home. Who knows what what Auburn will look like next year. Florida at home. Uh, Chris, you just mentioned Dan Mullen. A lot of uncertainty there. They're going to be losing a lot, especially from that uh, just lethal offense from this season. Kentucky at home. Vanderbilt at home at Tennessee, and at Texas A&M. There's some winnable games there. And if if Beamer can go 7-5 and five at a minimum, but 8-4, and four, maybe better, I mean, that's, that's about as good a turnaround as you could ask for. Um, and I think this next year will really be telling because if they have another 4-8 and eight or 5-7 and seven campaign with a fairly winnable schedule, then you might be questioning the hire. Yeah, well, I mean, look look at all the guys that you listed that he recruited to South Carolina, Clowney, Gilmore, uh, you know, all those guys. What was South Carolina's actual records those years? I mean, they had like Alshon Jeffrey playing wide receiver. They're winning eight games. I think they peaked at maybe nine wins. I mean, they beat Alabama, uh, who was number one at the time one year. I think they were in the top ten towards the end of the year and won the Outback Bowl or something. But, I mean, even with all of those five-star, like legit five-star guys, uh, top, top recruits in the country, uh, they were still peaking at 10 wins. I think they might have gotten 10 wins once. I don't have those numbers in front of me. But, uh, you know, it's it's just a really tough, tough job. Uh, Chris, you want to talk before we kind of round this back out? We'll do some odds and end coaching stuff for like 30 seconds, and then we'll kind of – round it back out and talk about the implication for Virginia Tech that this coaching carousel might have. No, that was it. I mean, you were just mentioning those people. I mean, that's what the fruits of his recruiting labor were, and that stuff is usually not realized until a few years down the road. And I think he left the year right before they started winning and rattling off those 11-win seasons um, when Spurrier was there. So, you know, that was his role then. This is his role now as the head coach. Hopefully he was, you know, taking notes from Spurrier because 
God knows that guy knows how to win SEC games and and prolong <laughs> and how to win championships. Um, because I mean, that's the one thing that you're betting on for them is just he has had the greatest mentors along the way at every single stop. And if he has just been paying attention and not just trying to like, you know, weave his way to you know a, a coaching position, which I don't assume that he is. But when your dad's Frank Beamer, you coached under Steve Spurrier. You know, you've been at Georgia, you've been at Oklahoma, you know, you've been at these elite programs, just being exposed to that, that kind of like coaching osmosis hopefully has seeped into his, his capacity and, and he can do like it. a sponge, just yeah, soaking I'm, it all in. Yeah, um, I, I will be a fan of um, South Carolina solely because we rarely ever play them and they play Clemson. So it only helps us by them beating Clemson because you know, it's always fun to see Clemson lose. Best of luck, Shane. You got this, dude. <laughs> you got this. Um, just some few other hires around the country that I wanted to bring up. Some of them funny, some of them good. Uh, Blake Anderson, who was the coach at Arkansas State, he resigned earlier in the season. He took the job at Utah State. I think that is an excellent, excellent hire. One of the best hires. Blake Anderson won two Sun Belt titles at Arkansas State. Utah State is a school that has had some success there. Um, they will look to start competing in the Mountain West again. Um, some other random hires. Uh, Butch Jones got the Arkansas State job behind him. Um, I, I can't believe someone hired Butch Jones, but they did. So, uh, yikes. Uh, and then we look at another interesting hire. Louisiana Monroe hired Terry Bowden. That Terry Bowden, uh, Terry Bowden, former Clemson coach, uh, then went to Akron. was actually somewhat successful from Akron. Akron, for some reason, fired him after two bowl games and became the worst program in almost the history of college football. He is back. Guys, he was a graduate assistant last year with Clemson at 63 years old. He was a 63-year-old graduate assistant. I just think to keep for the Christmas theme, I think of the scene in Elf where Buddy is sitting in the small desk with all the other little elves, but he's obviously grown up Will Ferrell. That's what I kind of picture Terry Bowden being like in those GA meetings at Clemson. He's like a blue from old school on that Clemson staff. He's just that old guy filling out that, that role there for them. But yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah. He's like Billy Madison. <laughs> I, it's just, uh, that's, that's a funny hire to me. And then maybe one of the bigger stories of this whole, uh, coaching carousels, the guys that didn't move. Uh, Jamie Chadwell got a seven-year extension at Coastal Carolina, uh, one of the more high-profile programs in the country this year for some reason. Uh, and then we look at um, you know, Scott Satterfield. There were thoughts that he was going to leave Louisville for a billion different reasons. He did not. Billy Napier at Louisiana, a uh, high-profile guy, um, looked like he was a leader for the Auburn job. He either backed out or didn't get it kind of sounds like he didn't get it so he will stay at louisiana for at least another year and then probably the bigger name of all those mario cristobal the head coach of oregon who was one of the leading candidates for the auburn job right off the bat he will stay at oregon he got a big fat contract he's looking to build them back into a national championship caliber team yeah and another uh some coaching news boise state leading candidate speaking of oregon andy avalos a former boise state linebacker He's currently the defensive coordinator at Oregon. 
uh, spent seven years on the staff at Boise. He's the leader for that position. As of right now, another uh, leading candidate would be Kellen Moore, which I think would be a really fun hire. Currently with the Dallas Cowboys, uh, Hokie fans know Kellen Moore very, very well. Um, that would be a fun hire. Um, but yeah, so that's that's a job opening. That is, I mean, we've talked about the Boise State job and how good of a job that can be. So an interesting one to keep our eyes on as the offseason continues. Guys, I want to round it out by kind of looking at how this all relates to Virginia Tech. Now, Virginia Tech was, I mean, everyone pretty much thought Justin Fuente was gone and that Virginia Tech was going to be part of this coaching carousel. And all of a sudden it wasn't with Backpack Holds press conference to say that Justin Fuente is staying. And there are zero changes, none at all. I, I mean, uh, it's the same old, same old. How much do you think, and, and I just want to preface this, that uh, we have no hard sources for, for this. This is our own opinions. How much do you think that the Auburn job opening up and then Shane Beamer taking South Carolina, how much do you think that impacted with Babcock's decision to kind of stay put with Justin Fuente, knowing that there was a major, major job opening and that one of the leading candidates, anytime Virginia Tech is going to have an opening, was pretty much set in stone to go to South Carolina. I honestly don't think it made that much of a difference. And the reason why I think is that maybe the Auburn job wasn't quite as expected to be open um, but there were a lot of jobs that people thought would open that didn't, like Texas and Michigan, um, USC, like lots of other jobs here, higher profile than Virginia Tech that, I mean, they're keeping, you know, with the course, I suppose, the same way Virginia Tech is. Um, and I think that if, if Tech really wanted to go out and get, I mean, the name that was really floating around was Tony Elliott. And if they really wanted to go out and get Tony Elliott, clearly no one got in their way. Um, it was just a matter of, did Tony want to come to Tech? And did Tech want to move on from Fuente to bring in Elliott? So I, I don't know if the Auburn job really made that much of a difference. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, the lack of movement was just across the board. ADs tend to be very conservative. You know, people kind of, you know, point, you know, just the finger at wit for being uber conservative. And if that's the case, that is. But that's what we're dealing with as Virginia Tech fan base. Um, and Irby brought up a good point here. Like, yeah, those openings may or may not have had any kind of influence on Witt's decision. But let's say if next year goes poorly, it doesn't get easier because those positions he just mentioned more than likely will come open. And now we're not competing with just Auburn and South Carolina, but now we are potentially competing with Michigan, with Tennessee, with Southern California, with Texas, possibly even Nebraska. Like we're, we're going to be looking at a much more open playing field. And even then, if those are filled with other power five coaches and those places open up, those are blue bloods that hire great coaches from not only other blue bloods, but from other power five schools as well. So those openings open up and then those are teams that we're competing against. So the playing field next year could be 
huge in terms of just kind of the the coaching carousel that we see or the lack of movement this year um, could mean just everyone's just holding their cards close to their vest and just waiting to to throw them onto the table and you know December time frame this time next year so um I don't think there's anything outside of you know a 10 win season a New Year six and a college football playoff for any of those teams we mentioned in the first part of that. Um, because they are at their wits end for the much money and donor investment they have there. It's championship or bust for a lot of those schools, especially Texas, USC, and Michigan. Um, and the personalities are sometimes even lack of personality. You think of somebody like Clay Helton, who is, who is not doing or moving the needle there. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're going to be in that same competitive atmosphere next year. So tactical, strategic, I don't know how he was thinking, but it, I, it's not going to be easier just one year deferred or excuse me, one year delayed. Right. Right. And I agree. And, you know, there's the whole money thing and we won't get too much into that because I think if you're, you know, a big enough Virginia Tech fan to be listening to this podcast, you're probably pretty well versed in the Justin Puente buyout contract by now. Um, What kind of, I wanted to bring up there is, and we brought it up offline too. The NFL is also a big part of this. And we look at the lions, the jets, the Jaguars, uh, who knows what's going to happen with the Falcons and the Texans. So a lot of things could come open up that could pick off some of these coaches and then it's just domino effect. And one of the reasons that I wanted you guys to think about, and, and me as well, to think about ranking those job openings was, okay, how does Virginia Tech really fit into this if you have a coach like Tony Elliott, who was one of the top names looked at Virginia Tech, Luke Fickle, who was you know, the hottest thing you know, since sliced bread, Billy Napier, who is another guy who will be looked at by a lot of schools. How does Virginia Tech fit into that mold when there is a potential of Texas opening up? There's a potential of Iowa State opening up, Michigan, Nebraska. Um, can't believe I threw Iowa State in that conversation, but their conference title game. I'm just thinking about coaches that could leave. Uh, it, I mean, it's. Oklahoma. I mean, Lincoln Riley goes to the NFL. Oklahoma is a massive job. I mean, it's just where does tech fit into that? And I think if you're with Babcock, the thing you have to be talk, thinking about long term is if I do need to move on to from Justin Fuente, will I be able to get my guy? And I'm not so sure that they felt confident that they were going to be able to get their guy or that there was a guy on the table for them to get. Um, and maybe those are two different conversations, but you look at Auburn and you look at what they had to go through. And I told you we'd circle back to Auburn. They, they were not ready for this coaching vacancy at all. They just didn't look at it. Um, no disrespect to our boy, Brian, who we all hope does the best. I've really enjoyed watching you at midnight on a Saturday night, Brian. Um, I don't think that was their number one guy pretty clearly. And, you know, that's Auburn's number one guy, the guy that they can pay for. I mean, look, Brian was probably three or four on their list, and he was 69 and 19 at a major college football team. Uh, number three and number four of Virginia Tech's list is not going to be that high profile of a coach. I'll tell you that right now. Um, so it's just something to think about. It's something to think about. It's always an interesting part of college football because it is a business. It's not personal. Um Programs need to win so that they can make money so they can, they can keep doing what they're doing. Uh, another kind of closing thought, if you look at 
some of the guys we talked about that were fired, Kevin Sumlin, Derek Mason, and Lovey Smith. Those are three really big coaching names in the college football world. So where those guys will land will be very, very interesting. Uh, Boise State potentially getting a big name. Who knows? Um, who knows if Oklahoma or Iowa State will open up with Lincoln Riley or Matt Campbell, respectively. Guys, any comments on that as we sign off for the holiday season? I think Kevin Sumlin is going to get a coordinator job somewhere at a Power 5 school, which is interesting because he hasn't been a coordinator since 2007. Um, and frankly, he didn't have much coordinator experience even then. So it's a matter of can he go to a program where uh, his he doesn't need advanced offensive expertise, but he needs to recruit well, which is what he does best. So. Uh, that's a little interesting nugget that I I kind of found. Well, speaking of the coordinator, I, I mean, any any program would be stoked to have Derek Mason or Lovey Smith as their defense coordinator. I mean, those are two top-notch defensive minds that didn't work out for them coaching, head coaching. Um, but to be fair, they weren't really put in positions that many people would be successful in. So those are two pretty big names that are sitting out there um, Defensive-minded. Chris, what do you got? No, I don't have too much on 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 Derek Mason. Just, I mean, he seems like he's a lot younger. I, I think for Lovey, like you're 60-plus now, you know, things are probably winding down. You know, the fact that you were just a Chicago Bears head coach for a pretty substantial amount of time was probably the only reason that you went back to Illinois in the first place, just because you're familiar with the landscape that seemed like it was a swan song type tour for him. Um, so I, I think either a, he just, he's done with coaching or B he's done with coaching and wants to still be kind of like involved with football. So maybe he takes like an operations job or maybe goes into like the studio or something like that. I, I've, I've actually never heard him really kind of uh, speak before. So I don't know if he has like that kind of like ESPN kind of NFL uh, network kind of personality. He can come in and do that, but that seems like more where he's positioned right now for, for where he's at just age wise and post career now. So. Yeah. It, it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out. Um, it will not be shaking out at Virginia tech. They are staying the same. Justin Fuente, Brad Cornelson, Justin Hamilton, and the whole gang are staying put in Blacksburg for the time being guys. When we talked about doing this podcast, I did not think would be a podcast like this. I don't think any of us did. Um, I thought we were going to mention Tony Elliott and Luke Fickle a whole lot more, but we didn't. Um, who knows? Maybe this time next year we will. And um, just want to wish everyone Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We will be back next week to get the playoff picks in. Uh, we'll have a more whole crew for that as well. Um, should be a lot of fun. The spreads are ridiculous. Um, I, I mean, ridiculous. Ridiculous that we're looking at three touchdowns for the Alabama Notre Dame game and it's moving every day. My goodness. Um, that's going to be a fun one to look at guys. Thanks as always. See you next week and go Hokies. Go Hokies. Oh, no.